podcast. I'm your host, Craig. The Wine Beat is an exploration of the world's great wine regions, often off the beaten track. And today, we're going to the South Downs in Sussex in England. We're going to English sparkling country, and we're going to visit Tinwood Estate, and we're going to talk to Art Tucker. About 14 years ago, Art Tucker's father realized that his lettuce farm was becoming unsustainable. So he handed over to his son and said, Okay, Art, over to you. See what you can do. So at the age of 21 years old, Art took the reins of the family farm and he decided to take a radical new course. He decided to make sparkling wines. Now, at this time, there were only a handful of established producers making sparkling wine, but Art persevered. He defied the skeptics, and there were many of those, and he's now part of England's surging sparkling wine industry. So the scene is growing, and he caught the wave. This recording is from my visit to Sussex in May of this year, 2019. If you want to get an insight into what is one of the hottest trends in wine in the world, to be at the leading edge of uh, of what is the most exciting and promising sparkling wine region in the world, then this podcast is for you. English sparkling is winning awards all over the place, uh, but there you go, uh, ruining the whole podcast by talking too much at the beginning. So let's just get going. Here's... Art Tucker, Tinwood Estate. Let's go. I'm with Art Tucker at Tinwood Estate in West Sussex. We're in the South Downs, one of England's premier wine-growing regions, famous now for sparkling wines. And Art, we're between the villages of Boxgrove and how do you pronounce? Hounaker. Hounaker. Yeah, that's right, Craig. Yeah. Beautiful small villages uh, in the in the Sussex countryside. And also we're near the city of Chichester, which is one of England's prettiest towns, uh, mm-hmm. famous for its Roman ruins. Um, and we're on Art's beautiful wine estate, where Art makes sparkling wine. So Art, thanks for joining me on The Wine Beat. Thanks for inviting me, Craig. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's, I'm just going to turn it over to you, Art. Can you, uh, can you tell us about yourself and the estate? And Absolutely. So uh, I'm a second-generation farmer here on this piece of land. Mum um, and Dad were farming it before me. I was born here, uh, but they were not growing vines like I am today, actually iceberg lettuce farmers, uh, which is probably, I'm not sure you come here to do a podcast about iceberg lettuces somehow, so I think the wines turned out to be more interesting. That could be another podcast. (laughs) Lettuce wine, I don't matter. (laughs) You never know, low in calories. Okay, yeah, so dad was um, growing iceberg lettuce, and we quickly found that if you're a small, medium-sized family farm trying to produce uh, fresh produce for a supermarket, life starts to get very hard sometimes. Uh, Price goes down and down every year, but our costs were going up and up. And it got to the stage that, um, yeah, Dad had enough, and he wanted to retire. So, um, And then he kind of thrust the farm onto me at the age of 21, which was... um, Wow, 21. Yeah, nice you took young. over the farm at 21. I did. It's the fresh face out of out of university. And uh, uh, he said, you've got a blank canvas and you can go and, and do what you want. So we started to plant vines. Now, I assume that he spent some time transitioning with you. No, it was almost immediate, yeah. He just, he <laughs> so just here said, you go. off you go. I've had enough. You can't, you, you either grow, you're either a supermarket supplier or you're not. You can't kind of say, I'm, well, I'm going to do a little bit here or there. It's either... Everything or nothing. Right, okay. So so when you decide to move away, you, I guess it was your decision to move away from lettuce, and then it, was a, it had to be a complete change. Yes, yeah, something completely different. Um, I have to say, growing vines is a lot more fun than growing lettuce. Is that's, it? Okay. That's, that's, that's yeah. the first thing I should say. Um, <laughs> so first thing we did is pull out all those lettuces, and we started to plant the three classic champagne varieties. So planting Chardonnay, which is about half of the vineyard, Pinot Noir, that's about 30% of the vineyard, and Pinot Meunier, 20%. So a 50-50 split between the white grapes and the red grapes. Right. And um, we started planting in 2007. And, well, okay, as you drove into the village, you would have seen what kind of soil we had, because when you look at all the uh, flint walls as you enter the village of the Goodwood Estate and all the houses in this village, they're all made out of flint. Yes. And... When we walk out in the vineyard later, you'll see that we have an incredible amount of stone, um, flint soils, which is fantastic for the vineyard for drainage. And 
uh, when you think about vineyards, you probably first sort of thing that might come into your mind might be California or Spain, south of France, Italy, pretty hot, dry, arid sort of countries. And if you've been driving around this morning, you see that England is not very arid. It's pretty green. It's, it's very really lush. lush. Yeah. Um, so we get a bit of rain. And uh, having that, that stone in the soil lets the water pass through the soil very easily. It's very well-drained, um, which is really important for those vines because they don't, they don't want to sit in a wet, muddy field. That's not the conditions those vines will thrive in. Uh, also, the, the stones, they, they heat up during the day and they'll keep the temperature of the vineyard up during the night, which is really important this time of year because we're talking now in mid-May and really those vines start to wake up mid-April and for those first three or four weeks, we, we're always very nervous about frost here. You could have a frost. Yes. That's interesting. Those stones have the dual effect of retaining heat. They do. But the most, really, I'd say the much more important that is for uh, draining the soil. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, but perhaps even more important, all that flint that sits on top is what's underneath. Uh, meter deep here, pure chalk. And we find the chalk everywhere throughout the South Downs. Um, here it's a meter deep. But as we start to get to the southern boundary of the farm, the chalk is getting deeper and deeper. And actually at that end of the farm, it's more like three to five meters deep. Um, well, this chalk actually continues to get deeper. It goes underneath things, channel, and it sort of ripples up again in, in really prominent places in France, being Champagne, Côte de Blanc, mm -hmm. most famously, and parts of Burgundy, Chablis in particular there. And this chalk is just especially good for growing Chardonnay. Chardonnay. Is that the same formation? That's same band of chalk. That yeah. travels all the way to Champagne and Burgundy. If you look at where Champagne is, um, Champagne's about 100 miles further south than we are. It's, if you were to look on a map of how far away it is, it's not so far away. Right. It's just that the question is a bit of a sea in the middle, so you can't drive in a straight line. You have to go round. But as That's the crow flies. It, yeah, but yeah. as the crow flies. It's so it's the so same far. chalk formation. And it is. And you, you're working with that same yeah. substrate limestone, for the vines. Limestone, basically. Limestone, basically. Chalk is, um, is the skeletons of crustaceans, you know, but deposited over millennia and then compressed yeah. So it's amazing. We walk through the vineyard and, uh, you know, when you're looking at soil sampling and looking at your vines, you look down the ground, it's quite often you see uh, the fossils of sea urchins. And, you do, huh? Yeah. You know, yeah. Was, the old, was the old seabed where yeah. these vines are growing in. Uh, so we started to plant those vines. Um, now, was it your vision? Obviously, it was your vision right from the beginning to make sparkling. Yes, it you was. Pl you planted the three varieties with the intention of just doing... It was. Uh, back in... 07, um, there were two very prominent producers, there, there were only two producers. Uh, there was Nightember and there was Ridgeview. And Nightember started in 1994, uh, Ridgeview started in 1995. And for this a is a young wine industry when you think about yeah. it, a very young wine industry. Ridgeview had 10 acres of vines, uh, Nightember had 14 acres of vines. So the total production of sparkling, solely sparkling wine vineyards in England for 15 years was 22 acres, something like that. Is that right? That I didn't know it. that. It's, 20, I mean, I, I, I guess I would have assumed that there was more, even though it's, I mean, I knew it was a relatively recent yeah. uh, wine industry, the sparkling. Here, There's only two guys. Um, wow. Everyone said they're crazy. And every year everyone kept calling them crazy. And then um, suddenly I remember Night Timber won best sparkling wine in the world in the IWSC challenge. And then everyone kind of went, wow, what's going on? And then a year later, uh, Ridgeview won the best sparkling wine in the Decanter Wine Awards. Um, and that was the, actually the year after that was when we started to plant. And we, we thought that sparkling wine has a good future here in the UK. I mean, there is quite a, quite a discussion about where is the place of still wines here in this country. Um, we're sparkling wine producers. There are other people trying to do stills. Uh, I think it's difficult, but I would say that I'm a sparkling wine producer. <laughs> There's um, kind of going a bit off tangent, I suppose, but uh, sparkling wine, you can get to a price point of £25 a bottle, and people might not necessarily... It would still blink, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't groan because champagne is £35 a bottle, generally for Grand Marks, Moet, Verve. Yeah. Um, so at £25 a bottle, people, people accept it. Yeah. 
but a still wine from England at £25 is, is way too much. I understand. So then you've got to try and charge then 10, 12, 14 pounds a bottle. I've heard of, I mean, I've heard about some great Pinot Noirs uh, mm-hmm. coming out of England and uh, Chardonnays, but, uh, but you, they tend to be at the higher price point. Yeah. For a still wine. And if I was to go out to Chablis and buy a, I could buy a Premier Cru Chablis for 15 pounds a bottle. Yeah. And to say that we're going to start producing better still wines than Premier Cru Chablis, I, I personally think it's quite a tall ask. That's that's yeah. me being bluntly truthful about it. We don't have the yields, our uh, our labour costs are high, uh, land costs are not particularly low, um, and the eat local, buy local kind of tendency probably helps to yeah, some degree. To buy, to buy the first bottle, but you've got to persuade them to buy the second and third. Yeah, okay. You know, okay. Do you know what I mean? So you're, that that um, great British pride would make you buy, make you try it. So there's a there's an economic. Uh, uh, compulsion uh, incentive to produce sparkling but it's, it's but it's what we're best at but it, it re- you really you feel it really is what yeah I mean we we win gold medals and awards and trophies for sparkling wines uh, and it's much I'm not gonna say it never happens but it's much rarer for the still wines and I suppose perhaps sparkling wines we planted in 2007 night timbers planting does born as well uh, there was quite a push towards sparkling wines, and perhaps now there might later on be a push towards still wines. That might still, it's slower on the uptake, um, but it might still get there. But also with global warming, of course, we're becoming warmer and warmer, and with sparkling wines, you don't need quite so much heat as you would do for still wines. But obviously, as de- in decades to come. There's only one way the temperature's going, isn't it? So, so is it fair to say that the, um, the the change in climate has tracked the success of the wine, of the sparkling wines? Is I, I'd say it's a factor. I wouldn't say it's uh, the only thing that has led to the the rise of English wine is global warming, but it, it definitely has helped. Um, when we planted in 2007, there was no one else. We were, you know, right on the frontier. There was, you know, Nightingale had just started planting as well, but... There was no industry. Um, we had to import the wines, import the, the young vines from France, or the all the trellising just turned up on a truck from Germany. Uh, but there was no very, very few consultants. There were no labourers offering services. There were uh, our tractor first had to be imported from Spain because there was no one selling vineyard tractors. You know, you were you were out on your own. Right. You, if something broke or you needed to have some help or some advice. It wasn't there. It wasn't going to be in stock. No. So, um, and it was a bit like New Zealand was when they started 30, 40 years ago. They were all sheep farmers and then found that, hey, let's start planting vines. And yeah. you still see out there the old vineyards are planted very wide because the only tractors they could get down those rows were actually apple tractors, not viticulture tractors. So that's why some of the rows are a bit wider. Uh, so when we, when we planted... 2007, um, we imported all of our vines from from France, um, but the French they they really didn't want to come and plant English vineyards. They didn't. A, no. Why not? Um, a point of pride, or they didn't want to leave home. Well, how do you, how do you explain as an English person why French people don't want to always come <laughs> over and help? How uh, you do that? <laughs> Diplomatically. Uh, yes, <laughs> they're not the most neighbourly of neighbours oh, okay. to the British wine industry at times. Um, yeah, so we didn't ask French, actually asked the Germans. And the Germans came with these laser-guided planting machines. Every row is precisely 100% straight. <laughs> Every vine is exactly where it should be. differences between Germans, French and English. Yeah, and this vineyard, this first one we planted, um, is 48,000 vines. It took three Germans two days to plant all of those vines. You're, you're kidding me. <laughs> So oh my God. Very efficient. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure the French would have done it at quite the same um, speed. No, perhaps. there would have been more wine drinking at lunch. No, yeah, they had two-hour, three-hour long lunch, and then the rows start to meander in the afternoon. <laughs> no, so now, now I don't want to interrupt you because you 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 know where you're going with your your um, description of the estate, but I, I want to make sure that we take time to blow the horn for Tinwood about the success you've had. Okay. Um, so if if you want to come back to that, that's that's fine, mm-hmm. but. Um, you've talked about Nye Timber and Ridgeview, and yes. they're winning best sparkling wines mm-hmm. in the world. Um, 
and I think it's it's fair to say that this is still information that is that is that is getting out to the world. I'm uh, maybe I've been living under a rock, but it seems that my friends and I are just you know I mean I've known of English sparkling for several years now, mm-hmm. but I. It's partly that it's not so available in the in the in the in the market in uh, yeah. where I live in Canada, um, but I think people are still getting the uh, you know it's, it's it's a little bit of one of those things where you still find people going oh really they make good wine in England, so I think you I think it's that's yeah, a, so a naive I, thing to say but I want you to talk about the success absolutely so um, English wine has gone through an absolute transformation in the last ten years, uh, but the first place that obviously we as as growers go to sell our wine is local market and our local market being london and the south side of the uk um now outside of france the brits are the biggest champagne drinkers in the world we as brits drink more bottles of champagne uh, us 65 perky bricks drink more bottles of champagne than 300 million americans do okay all right well that's that's impressive actually yeah by by vo- champagne. Champagne. By volume, not by price. Yeah. Actually, the Americans drink more by value. Um, and the reason for that is that the, the American market are more fixated or more lean towards buying brands. They're more brand orientated. So they go, oh, that's a bottle of mum, that's a bottle of verve, that's a bottle of moe, that's what I'm going to drink. In England, we walk down the supermarket and go, oh, look at that champagne. I've never heard of that, but it's half price. I'm going to try that one. Give it a try. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. A bit more, perhaps a bit more price conscious, but we drink so much of it, so we have to be. Um, so when we go in to make these wines, uh, obviously the easiest market to sell to is the one that's around you. Of course. And London, obviously, being an hour away. It's um, going to soak up a lot of sparkling wine. It t- soaks up a lot of sparkling wine. But also, the moment that everyone plants because it's sparkling from the moment everyone planting to the moment everyone has a bottle because it has to go through a second bottle fermentation it's taking seven to eight years to have a bottle of wine ready to sell so all these plantings like us in 2007 2008 and all the people actually after us they're only now coming into proper volume and only now that we're coming into proper volume that we are starting to export much more and more uh, the first sort of markets to be hit were the Scandinavian countries, mm-hmm. Norway, Sweden, Finland, Denmark. And they had good success. They have a bit like Canada, a monopoly system. So the government own and buy and run uh, the wine import, um, which actually leads to some fantastic wine lists, but perhaps not the cheapest wine lists. Yeah, they're very adventurous with their wines. I think You'll, you, they have an interest in Canadian wines, which, mm-hmm. where, you know, not, not, not many countries have an interest in Canadian wine. It's quite nice that the government tells you what you should drink, and it should be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and now, uh, through Ridgeview, Ridgeview's uh, exporting about 25% of all of their production now, and the biggest market for Ridgeview is the United States. Right, okay. So what started, you're saying Started is on the East Coast, started with uh, D.C., New York, um, and it spread south to Atlanta, uh, and then west from there uh, to Texas, and now California. So the reputation Washington. can really start to grow now that there is a, uh, enough volume for export. Well, it actually, um, it kicked off. So yeah, what's to do with the reputation? Um, but President Obama came to visit on his stately, stately visit, and um, there's this fantastic picture in the winery where you've got the Queen standing in the middle, David Cameron, He's gone now as well. Um, and then Obama, and they're all standing there on the, on the footsteps of Buckingham Palace with a glass of Ridgeview. And right. when, that, when, that, when that picture went out around the world, everyone went, what are they drinking? What are they drinking? They're drinking Ridgeview. And all the Americans are like, if the Queen's drinking it, then so should we. <laughs> so actually, that, that moment there actually led to quite a few channels opening for export to the United States. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's a that's a pretty compelling little. <laughs> that's a uh, nice way to start, right? Yeah, marquee ad. And actually, if you go to the water, you see that on the other side of the of the window, the, the next picture is the Queen, David Cameron, and the Chinese Premier <laughs> standing where <laughs> of a glass of Ritchie on the steps of Buckingham Palace. So, 
Uh, we're now actually subsequently selling in Hong Kong and Singapore. I guess. As well. I, guess, <laughs> I, guess, I, guess. <laughs> I mean, if you want a brand ambassador, you gotta you gotta have a bomber, right? Yeah, that would that, that would work. <laughs> and, you know, with standing with the Queen and David Cameron, that's perfect. Yeah. So um, we're we're mentioning Ridgeview um, because they are one of the I guess pioneers, and they they've won uh, awards for the best sparkling wines in the world. And yes, so I, I probably should met. explain our relationship with yeah, Ridgeview a bit exactly. better. So. Um, we own 25% of Ridgeview. Ridgeview, we are, we are, we are primarily growers. Uh, I'm a grower and I grow grapes for Ridgeview Wine Estate. And Ridgeview has a very small vineyard themselves. Um, we're much larger. And uh, a lot of their wines, of their main drinking wines, 65, 70% of that wine is coming from grapes from this estate. And the Roberts family, they are fantastic winemakers, really, really good winemakers, and their focus is winemaking. And um, they are, uh, my, my dad, he's chairman of the winery. And um, we, when we started, uh, obviously just being a kind of a you know, family business, uh, we focused on growing, but then to build a winery at the same time, uh, you need incredibly deep pockets for that. In millions and millions. I mean, Ridgeview now is sitting on a million bottles of stock just because it all has to go for its second ferment in bottle. Um, and obviously there's a there's a cost associated to yeah, that. Yeah, wouldn't, one wouldn't, uh, looking at it from the outside, outside, one wouldn't immediately think about the cost of Absolutely. building up your inventory and, yeah. and so we aging all those we, bottles. We focused on our investment into planting vines. Um, and you want to get, when you plant vines, there's a lot of people who want to do it as a hobby and then plant 15 acres of vines. I think that's, that's not really a hobby. That's a, that's a lot of hard work. That's being a farmer full time yeah. every day. But you're not big enough then to, in, you know, you're not really big enough to have the proper kit and uh, the, you know, the best tractors and best machinery and um, do consulting and everything else. So you're in that kind of weird zone of really too big to be a hobby, but not big enough to get the economies of scale and make we, an income yeah. out of it so we definitely have this dynamic where i come from in canada where a lot of people have started wineries of that side of kind of size as a passion project and they love it you know but but it's all encompassing it takes over it's exact yeah it's it's 365 days a year you're <laughs> yeah. subject to the weather all of that stuff yeah um well weather leads on to another thing here really uh weather so you are you are uh, your grapes are going into the top sparkling wine yes. from England. Mm -hmm. And those top sparkling wines from England are actually winning top sparkling wines in the world. Yeah, so... Um, You're being a bit modest. Uh, yeah, so I should, should say. Um, so Ridgeview, this year, they won um, they won Best Blanc de Blanc uh, in England. And with that, then, with that trophy that they won, they go into the pool with all the other trophy winners in the world in the International Wine Challenge. Award, which is arguably the uh, the premier award of the the world wine, fine wine in the world. So they're against the Champagnes, the Napa guys, everyone, and they're in that pool. And uh, they were then chosen from that pool to be best winery in the world. So um, really amazing award. It came as a quite a surprise because <laughs> um, if you look at the list that you're you're up against and um, you know, and obviously we're one of the smaller ones. Yeah, what a ones. tremendous accolade. That's just it's fantastic. Crazy, really. Uh, and so, you know, two days ago we were there with the, the royals were Princess Camilla, uh, wife of King of future King Charles, flew down in a helicopter last week to, to meet us all at the winery and have a glass of bubbles wow. overlooking the vines. Um, so, yeah, it's been... It's been wow, that is fantastic. Yeah, yeah so... It's going from strength to strength. So, so Princess Camilla is taking an interest in in the wine. Is that is that? Yeah. So she's now um, the patron or the head of Wine GB, um, which has been quite interesting as well. It was it was previously called the UKVA, but yeah. um, it's now Wine GB. It's being rebranded now. Suddenly, we have much more entrance into the industry. Before it was, uh, I mean, we would sit in a room and there's about fifteen of us. Now we have to get rooms of uh, 60 of us to fit in. So you can see how the industry expands when you see the rooms 
holding the industry for annual meetings are expanding as well. Yeah. And on the whole, the whole industry uh, works together. I mean, of course, there's no, you can't say 100% everywhere works together. But as an industry, they're, they're, we're pretty good. We're pretty, um, we do help each other out and um, there's a sharing of knowledge because we're, we're stronger together mm -hmm. than we are fighting against each other. I think you find that with winemakers generally mm. in many, many places. It's a very collaborative, very collegial. Uh, it's quite nice because you just go there and have a meeting, have a glass of wine together. It yeah. seems what? Yeah. Why would you argue? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, each 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 farmer, each winemaker is going to have challenges, and he's mm -hmm. going to benefit from the advice of the next guy and all of that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I don't want to take you off where whichever uh, direction you'd like to go with that conversation, but I want to make sure that we talk about uh, the varieties you're using. Mm -hmm. uh, you've already talked about that and the fact that we're using the three uh, classic, classic champagne, champagne varietals. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I would like to hear about why, um, I don't know, your thoughts on why they work well and um, the character they provide. and. Maybe a little bit about the unique character of uh, English sparkling. Um, again, uh, you can you can take the conversation yeah, wherever so you like, but uh, I think talking about the varietals and, and the character of the wines is yeah. important. Um, if you if you look at like the east side of France, of course you've got Champagne at the top, and then underneath that you have Chablis, and then you go uh, kind of fuller white wine styles almost. So, and then you go into light reds, and as you go into Cote de Rhone, heavier reds and and that, that difference that you see from the top to the bottom is all to do with your latitude. It's about how far north you are, and that really has a, an effect on, um, obviously, temperature. And us being right on the northern fringe of wine growing, uh, the best style that is suited to our climate, first and foremost, is sparkling. Um, when we're making our, our wines, we make a still wine that gets to about 9.5% alcohol. Um, but then the ferment stops, we run out of sugar because we're never reaching these very high levels of ripeness in our grapes, uh, which is perfect. It's, well, it's not perfect for still wines, um, and it probably would not be a nicer still wine you ever try in life, but it, it's a perfect base for spark. Because then we can put that still wine into the bottle, we add yeast, we add sugar, we make that wine go through a second ferment inside the bottle. That second ferment lifts the alcohol up to 12%, but a byproduct of fermentation, of course, is carbon dioxide, and that carbon dioxide can't escape, and it slowly starts, very slowly, under uh, the right temperature conditions, in total darkness, slowly starts to dissolve into the wine and that's what gives the wine its sparkle, its fizz. Perfect. And we got, you. we'll try the wines in a minute, but the wines are, in England, are on the drier style. Okay. So we talk about champagne obviously being very close to us. Um, I would say our, our style is drier. Is than drier champagne. than champagne? Okay, yeah. okay. Suits uh, my taste, by the way, but that's just me. Well, um, I would say there in the, in the last 30 years, arguably, the world's taste of wine is getting drier. It, it definitely is. You, you can see it. Uh, Mum and Dad were drinking sweet Riesling was, was the norm yeah. in the 80s and 90s. You'd go to a restaurant now and try and sell a bottle of sweet Riesling. It's, it's hard. Yeah. It's hard to sell sweet Riesling. People like dry wines, Chablis or New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc are bone dry. And mm -hmm. um, so dry seems to be very much on the scale. And I'd actually say of in the world of, of wine drinkers, I'd say the Brits are probably the one of the very driest of wine drinkers out there. Right. If you go to Germany or Holland, they like a sweeter style. Um, I actually went to Napa last year with dad and uh, they definitely have a fuller style. They drink Chardonnay, it's different than what we are used to drinking Chardonnay. Right. Although there is definitely a trend of uh, Chardonnay drinkers in America who are going drier. I mean, there's over-oat, over-extracted wines are becoming less common, less yeah. prevalent. Yeah, I think that pendulum's swinging. Yeah. It definitely is, yeah. yeah. So we, we are, a, we're a close to champagne, but we are growing same sort of varieties and making the wine in the same sort of method. Uh, but that's really where the similarities end, I would say. Um, so planted vines, and the first thing I did was I 
well, like like you, we were talking before the podcast, you did the same. Um, went away and did my vintage. And my vintage was in New Zealand. I was very lucky to work with uh, Mike and Claire Allen from Huia Vineyards. Uh, such a, an amazing, nice family to work with. And uh, they really took me in. I was very, I was only 21, so didn't really know much about the world, if you like. And uh, they really showed me pretty much everything I still do today is it's kind of uh, learned from those 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 months living in New Zealand. Um, we'll put a link to that vineyard on the on the show notes for the. Okay. Uh, so Mike is famous because he was one of the first winemakers of Cloudy Bay. Okay. And um, Claire was. I'll come back to you with Claire winemaker was. I have to look that up. <laughs> we'll put that on the show, show notes as well. <coughs> um, yeah, and they've got a they've got a sixty acre vineyard, um, and uh, pretty much exactly the same size as I am now. And um, we we'll go fishing with Mike through the Marlborough Sounds, catching blue cod and drinking New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. Was was a pretty cool way to spend a winter. Sounds yeah. pretty nice when you're twenty. So I was out there for eight months. And kind of from beginning so you did to the end. vineyard work and the winemaking exactly. work, exactly. Vineyard work and winery work. There was only there was only two of us in the vineyard, and there was four of us in the winery. <laughs> it was, yeah. I mean, if you go, if anyone wants to go out and do a vintage, make sure you try and work with a smaller estate than a bigger one. Because I know if you work for like a really big one, like Oyster Bay or one. Um, Rancroft or something, they kind of give you a tractor and a mower and they say, you go out and mow the vineyard and then two, three weeks later, you finish mowing the vineyard and you say, what should I do now? And he goes, well, you start at the beginning start again. Start mowing again. <laughs> and so, Where you started And last so time. if you really want to learn how to mow, then that's great. But if you're a small one, then you have to do everything. You get a chance to do all of the different parts. Exactly. You have to, yeah. and you have yeah. to pull your weight and there's no hiding yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, no snoozing on the tractor at no. the far end of the row. And actually, since I, I try and go back there every two or three years, um, and since I've left, they've gone fully biodynamic, actually. So oh, interesting. Yeah. They've really changed the way they grow their vines, um, which I'm quite envious of. I, I mean, would, would I like to be biodynamic here? I probably would, if, yeah. I, if I could choose. It's in the back of your mind. But we're just too wet. Ah, uh, okay. We would struggle. Yeah. Uh, there's some there's some years out there. If you're saying no, I'm biodynamic, but you just see mildew going through your vineyard, and then you say no, I'm going still biodynamic. And yeah, I think with our climate conditions, our Im- unpredictable climate conditions, it I understand would be too difficult. With, yeah, I understand it with, with sparkling wine, molds and mildews can be particularly detrimental to the flavors that you have to be. You lose your freshness out of it, basically. Yeah. Um, Botrytis and Danny Mildew are the two biggest biggest problems that, that we have here. That's yeah. your endemic uh, mm. uh, issues. Yeah. Uh, obviously, climate has a big big part to play on on viticulture. Uh, we're here on the on the south coast of England. Um, we're very close to the coast. Where we're we three are. miles from the sea. Three yeah. Miles, yeah. Which, which saves me, the vineyard owner, from my absolute greatest fear, which we're sort of just getting to the end of now. Frost. Springtime frost. I don't know if you, your listeners have probably heard about vineyard owners banging on about frost and how, how damaging. Uh, if we drop down to minus one, we lose 85% of our grapes in our first two weeks. Wow. Real, um, can I say kick in the nuts? Yeah. <laughs> it's a kind of real... It's a it real, it's a really sad way to begin your year. Uh, we've been frosted once here, 2016. Um, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. You know, you you know now for the rest of your season, if you've been frosted, you're working towards nothing, basically. Yeah, you know, it's painful. Uh, 2017, the whole industry here got pretty frosted, pretty bad. Funny enough, I didn't. Um, and one of the reasons for that is because of that proximity to the sea okay yeah of course come come springtime this time of year the sea is warmer than the land we have these ocean currents coming up from the azores in portugal and we have this constant stream of warm water kind of lapping up on our shores here and that really warms us up in the springtime we're quite lucky I, well i had to go out frost fighting only once this year but i know for instance Riju, who we speak to a lot they went eight times frost fighting um and what does frost fighting entail here 
Well, for, for different people, it means different things. So for us... Helicopters sometimes? Yeah, no, we don't use helicopters. Um, it's always on Easter weekend and Maybank holiday, Sunday morning at three o'clock in the morning, you need to get your helicopter out. But if you were looking out, overlooking the vineyard and the beautiful village of Botsgrove and Hanukkah, I'm not sure if they would appreciate five helicopters <laughs> on Easter Sunday, no, flying, no, constantly no, flying no, over no, and over no. and over. Um, so we have a, um, a system called a frost buster. I call it the dragon. Uh, has four uh, big gas bottles on the back of the machine and uh, we're burning gas and the PTO of the tractor drives a huge fan. We drive up and down the road, normally start at one o'clock in the morning, okay. blasting hot air out into the vineyard. Yeah. A lot of praying as we drive up and down yeah. the roads as well. Uh, so that's really desperate. But you, <laughs> really, have, but you do have the benefit of being so close to the sea as compared to some of your, uh, of, of your, your yeah, co- so other people in the industry. It's also a bit of luck, you know. So we're close to the sea, so we don't get so much frost. So I, I get to lie in my bed for a lot more evenings than others perhaps do. Um, but then... One, in the summertime, perhaps we get a bit more of a sea breeze. We do get winds more than inland. So, I mean, it's positive and negative to everything, but I'm pretty I'm pretty happy with the low levels of frost. That, that does, it gives me a little bit less stress, a little bit less worry. Yeah. Worrying, that's the main thing, yeah. At the end of the day, it, it is it is farming, and you've got, we've met, it is, we yeah. touched on that before, there's a lot of uncertainty. But really, uh, that's the springtime weather. But really, all of our weather comes from the southwest. Mm-hmm. And as we look out the window here, southwest, that's exactly which way those vines are pointing into the wind. Okay. So we point the vines into the wind so that the wind funnels down the rows. And um, we take off the leaves around the bunches of grapes. Yep. Um, and when that wind comes down, the wind kind of can kind of take down the humidity. Yeah. Um, bring down the disease. Yeah. It's much, much better to have a good airflow yeah. through your vines, around your bunches. Uh, or take the morning dew off. Um, so that's really important. If you look at a map of where we are, Chichester, southwest of us is the Isle of Wight. And the Isle of Wight is a rhombus-shaped island. It's got a very sharp leading western edge, which we call the needles. Mm-hmm. And there's, um, there's days you stand here and you see these rainstorms rolling in off the Atlantic Ocean. When they, when they hit this island, because of its shape, and because of its topography, it's a very hilly little island, the Isle of Wight. Um, these rainstorms actually start to go either side of the island and not really so much over the top of it. It splits these... Uh, You're right. And, and causes them to go around you. Exactly. We live oh, in wow. this rain shadow behind the Isle of Wight. And um, just three miles to the south of us is a town, small seaside town called Bognor Regis. Yeah. Um, Bognor Regis is always fighting out of another seaside town in East Sussex called East, Eastbourne. Eastbourne and Bognor Reach are fighting it out to be the sunniest town in mainland Britain, about eight out of every 10 years. Because of that splitting effect exactly, of the yeah. Isle of Wight. Exactly. Interesting. So with low levels of frost and relative, I mean, it's still England, so relatively high <laughs> levels of sunshine. <laughs> and this, uh, oh, yeah, this Unfortunately, we don't have sun today. Which no, is, uh, it's a bit of a drab day, I have to say. Uh, we've we've had some we've and had a cold spring. right is it is it it's unseasonably cool isn't it it is um, if you compare this to last year so 2018 was for us the vintage of a generation it was amazing it was there's no other words to to describe it than just mind blowingly awesome it was it was great it was super. We had um, very, really bitterly cold um, end of the winter. We had the beast from the east that we called, very, very cold. Um, and then that kind of passed over and then the clouds opened up and we had um, beautiful sunshine for the whole summer and the right sunshine at the right times with a little bit of rain here and there uh, led to 2018 being massive for us. We uh, harvested 275 tonnes of grapes. Uh, which will make us about 220, 225,000 bottles of sparkling wine. Right. Um, which is wonderful. Over 65 acres, so it's about <clears throat> four tons an acre that you're yeah. harvesting. We're normally, we're normally between two and a half and three and a half, somewhere like that. So we had some blocks really producing high volumes, um, but not too high either. And um, 
it was a very big harvest, but very clean. Uh, it was very, very little disease, and the earliest we've ever been picking. We're normally picking in nice. October time. We were picking in middle of September. And now you're worrying about disease and the... Well, not, not yet, not yet. So when we're looking at the vines now, you can see the first levels of inflorescence, the first flowers are starting to show themselves. Uh, really, the most important time for us now, weather-wise, is end of June. So five, six weeks time. Mm -hmm. yep. um, and those flowers will come off and all those flowers need to be pollinated, yeah. obviously by wind. Wind pollinated the vines and if we get cold, wet weather, the pollen sticks, the caps don't come off, the vines go into shock, uh, and that's not what we want, of course. So equally, 2018, fantastic year, but 2012, we did have that cold, wet spring, we didn't harvest anything. Right. So uh, there, there is like a certain, there's, certain, there's a certain kind of mindset that the harder it is to grow grapes in some kind of respect, when you get it right, the wines taste even better. If, if it's too easy to grow grapes, then the wines become a bit, have a, 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 go to a risk of becoming uninteresting after a while, in a weird sort of way. In a weird sort of way, but... but Okanagan would be so, slightly similar. Central Otago in New Zealand is similar. Yeah. I mean, cool climate winemaking, uh, which is what we're talking about here, is... Mm -hmm. uh, has some very special characteristics. Mm -hmm. um, when it goes right, it can go really right. Yeah. When yeah. it goes wrong, it can go really wrong. Yeah. It's and, high risk. Yeah, yeah. We don't need to go to Vegas, put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> You're gambling right here on the vineyard. Um, so, so what do you see as the future for English sparkling wine? Mm -hmm. Is there is there a lot of uh, uh, potential for new vineyards, for more vineyard acreage, and that kind of growth in the industry, or is it a little bit constrained? No, um, there is there is definitely more uh, room for growth in the UK industry. Uh, where is everyone going to sell it? Uh, there's a lot of people who plant vines who've got no plan of how they're going to make it, where are they going to sell it. They kind of say, we will plant it and the customers will come. It's sometimes I sometimes fear that sort of philosophy a little bit. I, we like to know where we're going before we go there, if that makes sense. Um, there is room for growth in the English industry. Undoubtedly, we are still so small. Uh, we are growing very quickly at the moment. And sparkling wine, I suppose sparkling wine has changed over the last 20 years. Uh, in the past, it was for celebration only. Uh, whereas now, uh, you can drink a bottle of sparkling wine with your, with your mates on a pizza on a Tuesday night, and it's not wild as it used to be. You know, It didn't have to be your 25th wed year wedding anniversary kind of thing, yeah. or your 50th birthday. Yeah. So we are undoubtedly drinking a lot more of it. There it's is one fear. of those segments that is definitely on the upswing. Mm. Uh, but undoubtedly, we drink more still wine still. Mm. Uh, so it's it's a very interesting time. I think the industry is finding its feet. I think it's doing well. Of course, there are risks that you, if you keep having years like 2018 where everyone has good harvests, that there's a risk of oversupply. And of course, when you get a risk of oversupply, then the price gets squeezed or comes under tension. I guess what at I'm the moment, finding. At the moment, we're very lucky that everything we produce, we can sell. Right. Easily. Right. Ten times over, let's say. But there will come a stage when the growers perhaps will have to look at each other and they're going to have to look at, you know, one customer and two growers. We haven't come to that situation yet. I'm, I'm not sure that will happen because if you, you know, I'm not going to argue with you on this, but um, from what I'm picking up from the conversation is that this is a very young wine industry in, in the south of England, a very young sparkling wine industry. The industry is already winning awards from time to time for producing the best sparkling wine in the world. Mm -hmm. And the reputation is just growing. So it seems to me that if more wine is produced, uh, the international market is probably going to take it up. We hope so. We hope so, absolutely. Um, that, and, I think, and I think it will. I think it will. I think uh, United States is going to be a big market. Quite a few growers are going to United States. Um, and obviously the Far East. It's difficult to sell sparkling wine in France or Germany because 
and Spain and Italy because they're obviously all making their own sparkling. They, have, they have their own and they're going to be... Uh, interesting enough, actually, I was at the London Wine Fair last year and um, I said to the champagne boys, are you worried about the rise of Prosecco? And the guys from Piper Heidsack said, no, 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 not at all, because those younger generation now who are drinking Prosecco now and say they're 23, 24, 25 years old and they're drinking Prosecco now, by the time they're 40, they're going to be trading up to champagne. He said their Prosecco is, in a lot of instances, setting up our future customer. Maybe they'll be trading up that was to quite, English, well, English sparkling. sparkling wine. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was quite an interesting point because he says, no, well, we're a different price bracket. So Prosecco's, you buy in the supermarket for six, seven pounds. We're not producing champagne at six, seven pounds. We're not producing English sparkling at six, seven pounds. But so when that's what they drink on a Tuesday night, perhaps, but then when it's their birthday or when it's a special occasion or when they have get a bit older and their their financial situation changes, then it's not difficult to get them to trade up, to try something a bit more, perhaps more interesting or get them uh, to become fans of, of champagne or English sparkling wine, which I thought was quite, quite interesting. Art. Uh, thank you for spending the time talking with me today. Congratulations on all your success. Thank you very much. This has been really illuminating and lots of fun talking to you. And uh, I'm just so impressed with the, your your vision. You've caught the updraft in the English sparkling market. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, I wish it's you all an, the success. It's an interesting world. Really interesting. <laughs> and it's a beautiful part of the country. The, mm. um, in terms of a, a place to visit in England, you couldn't find a more beautiful. Just one quick note on that. Um, what differentiates us from Champagne as well is that we are very visitor welcoming. So if anyone's listening to this podcast and wants to come visit, we do vineyard tours every day. Today, Saturday morning, we're sitting here. We're doing a 12 o'clock tour, a three o'clock tour, and then we're doing pop-up restaurant tonight. Different. We have a guest chef doing five course dinner tasting. Um, beautiful tasting, you can stay here on the estate in our vineyard lodges and that's one thing that's we took from new zealand as well is it, it's great to have a good product but it's even better if you can show people you know that really makes a difference and champagne are uh, not very good at Visitor showing experience. people the vineyard mm. no so you've got some of the most beautiful countryside in england you've got some of the best sparkling wine in yeah. the world You've got friendly uh, cellar <laughs> doors and vineyard tours. Yeah, so for instance, today the tours are sold out. We have 50 people at 12, 50 people at 3, and then 60 people for dinner tonight. So I better let you get busy. going. <laughs> I better let you get going. Thanks again, Art. Uh, thank you very much. That was Art Tucker of Tinwood Estate, and that is a podcast I've been looking forward to doing for quite a long time. I find the whole story of English sparkling wine fascinating. It's a bit of a surprise uh, to many of us to know the quality of wines that are coming out of England. Uh, it's a bit of an epiphany, uh, but it's something really fascinating. There's great terroir stories and uh, stories of climate, so fantastic stuff. Um, hope you enjoyed that. Next up on the Wine Beat, we have a series of four podcasts from the Loire Valley, recorded on location with four different winemakers, four different regions. So it's a great cross-section of what's going on in the Loire today. Also, as you know, we've got this sub-series called Cocktails with Winemakers. I hope you listened to the first episode in that sub-series. Felix Egger and I got together and drank margaritas and talked about the harvest decision. So this sub-series is about winemaking from a practical perspective, from a winemaker's perspective, but not in a technical way and not in an overwhelming chemistry way, but just you know talking about how people really make wine. Uh, at, uh, at, at quality wineries. So join us for more Cocktails with Winemakers uh, episodes. Those are coming up too. Please visit the website, www.thewinebeat.com. Lots of great content there. We've got a whole range of articles on wine regions under 1001 Wine Routes. Um, there's more content always being loaded up under dispatches, which is sort of general stuff about the wine industry and art and travel and that sort of stuff. And there's podcasts, of course, so good content being uploaded all the time on the Wine Beat. Come join us. Come check out what we're doing. Uh, we've got the new website, which is looking really good, I think. Let us know your comments on that. 
And uh, that's it. That's me. That's Craig for The Wine Beat. Come join us again next time. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.